you've just found yourself seated in your favorite restaurant. The waiter has just brought that sizzling steak and set it before you. Or that beautiful salad if you're a vegetarian. Condolences to you. And as you're beginning to cut up that steak and relishing the moment, the aromas, the atmosphere, in the booth behind you, you hear these words. It's not you, it's me. And we all know that those words are the words of rejection. As you're experiencing this wonderful moment in that meal, somebody behind you has just ruined the mood. They've decided to break off a relationship. It's not you, it's me. Rejection is something that happens in our lives. We can be rejected in personal relationships. We can experience rejection in the workplace. People passing over us for promotion or for hiring. Rejection's prevalent. And just as we experience that rejection, Jesus himself, in his own ministry and in his own life, experienced this type of rejection. And what we find in our passage today is that rejecting Jesus runs the risk of God hiding himself from us. Rejecting Jesus runs the risk of God hiding himself from us. Because where unbelief reigns, God limits His revelation of Himself. And so because real faith is rare in this world, a lot of times truth about God is hidden from people. They're unaware of it. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at that, look at two stories, two pictures, if you will, of rejection of Jesus from the Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth, and we're going to look at the rejection of John the Baptist, which is a rejection of Jesus in his ministry, in how Herod treated John the Baptist, the prophet. Now, last week we sort of concluded a, a series, a short series on the first part of Exodus, and we saw that we satisfied God by trusting in his substitute, Jesus. And what I want to do this morning and next week are look at the two ways that we can respond to the substitute that God has provided to cover our sins. We can reject Jesus, the substitute, or we can live a life of receiving Jesus, God's substitute. This morning we're going to focus on a life of rejecting Christ, rejecting Jesus, and then next week we'll look at some pictures, if you will, of receiving Jesus. And what, what's happening here in this particular passage is that you're coming off Jesus providing some teaching about what his kingdom is like, what it's like to live under his rule. And we saw this last fall when we spent a couple of weeks looking at Matthew chapter 13 and eight parables that Jesus teaches there to reveal and describe the kingdom of heaven. And the first of those parables was what's called the parable of the sower. And what happens is there was someone who was sowing seed, and there were four types of soils that the seed would fall upon. And we learn from that parable that the soils represent human hearts. There's four types of responses that someone can give to the message of Jesus. And they basically boil down to two. You can res respond positively. You can believe Jesus. 
receive Him or you can reject Him. And yet there's actually underneath those categories, Jesus expounds on there's different ways to reject the truth and there's different ways to receive the truth. And what's happening here, what we're going to look at today and tomorrow, is that Matthew is providing us real-life examples of these types of soils. And so we're seeing the first soil here in, with the, the town of Nazareth and, and Herod. We're seeing the hardened soil. When the seed's sown, it falls on the hardened path, and because the path's beat down, the seed can't take root. Instead, the birds come and, and peck and eat the seed off the hard ground. And so what we're seeing today is this outward hardened rejection to the message of Jesus and some of the rationale, the reasoning behind why people look at Jesus and say, it's not you, it's me, right? Why is it they do that? And so we're going to look at that, this idea of a hard heart. And then next week, we'll look at the receptive heart within the disciples, in both of these stories today, both the story of the people of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and Herod and his rejection of the message of Jesus and John the Baptist, what you have there are seeing both rejections of people, and both rejections are based on a mistaken understanding of who Jesus is. The hometown people mistake who Jesus is based on he's too familiar with them. And then King Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. There's a mistaken identity there. And really, this goal of this sermon and the goal of this passage is to expose to us the danger of unbelief. Jesus told a parable, a story to explain that it has existed, and now he gives us two living illustrations to help liven this truth up where we can see it, so hopefully we will take heed and avoid the danger of unbelief, and as we'll see a little bit next week, the danger of little faith, so that we live lives of full reception, full trusting, and full reliance on Jesus as God's substitute to deal with our sin and our shame, so that our lives can truly flourish and grow as we trust in Him. So what I want to do here this morning is look at how the people of Nazareth and Herod rejected Jesus. So rejecting Jesus then in the past. And then I want us to see how that those same forms of rejection take place now. And then we'll conclude by looking very personally at what we should do in responding to the truth that rejecting Jesus runs the risk of God hiding himself from us. Rejecting Jesus then. In the first story here with Jesus returning to his hometown, what you have is sort of what you experience if you've ever gone and to watch a movie in the movie theater and all of the tickets were taken up or perhaps you're one of these odd people that like to sit on the front row. And if you've ever had to sit on the front row of a movie, you realize, you know what, I'm too close to actually see. That's possible to be that way, right? And that's really what takes place when Jesus goes back home. Sometimes you're too close to see the truth. And that's what's what happening with the, the, the people in Jesus' hometown. They were so familiar with him that they couldn't really see who Jesus really was. When the Jesus had finished these parables from Matthew 13, he goes away from there and he comes to his hometown and he teaches them in their synagogue so that they were astonished 
They're marveling at what Jesus is able to teach. And they say, where, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They stand back. They marvel. They're in awe at what Jesus knows. But they ask a question, where did he get this ability? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this power to perform these mighty works? Because he certainly didn't get it from Nazareth. I, I remember when Jesus was just about yay high, and he was out having to carry out his daily chores. I remember when he was an apprentice to Joseph, and he was learning the family business of being a carpenter and a stonemason. There's no way. He, he wasn't trained in some elite rabbinical school to learn this wisdom. He's just one of us. And so they're questioning, where, where is the origin of this wisdom? Where is the origin of this miraculous power? Do these things come from God? Or, or do they have a human source or even a demonic origin? And it's not by accident that later on in the ministry of Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, Jesus enters the temple. And the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The Sanhedrin asked him that. Where's your source of authority, Jesus? Is it from God or is it from man? And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, you've rejected me, and therefore I'm going to hide information from you. I'm not going to answer your questions. I'm not going to give you revelation. And that's exactly what Jesus' hometown crowd is doing the same way. They don't believe that Jesus has this wisdom from God. They don't believe that Jesus possesses this human, this power to perform these miraculous works from God. They, they think its source is either human or demonic in origin, and so they reject Him. Jesus doesn't fit into their categories of what they thought the Messiah or a prophet would be. And like Jesus' own earthly family, right? If you look back before the parables of Matthew 13, notice the story that, that sort of begins the parables there in chapter 12. You can flip over there and look at verse 46. Matthew brackets the parables with stories about the reactions to Jesus by people closest to him. Here in, at the end of 13, it's by his hometown. At the end of chapter 12, it's by his own family members. And there it says, While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's a focus there that Matthew's trying to see. The kingdom of heaven comes in ways that aren't the way humans would think they are. It doesn't work according to our wisdom. And that's confounding Jesus' own family, and that's confounding Jesus' hometown 
people. They can't embrace the way that Jesus is because he doesn't fit the paradigm that they've created in their mind, this is how the Messiah should be. So they reject him. They marveled at his words, astonished at his teaching in the synagogue. They marveled at his works. Man, he's performing these great wonders. We've heard the stories of what he's done elsewhere. But they refused him worship. They refused to acknowledge that he was sent of God. And they attributed his work not to the Spirit of God, but to some other source. You see, Jesus seems to them at first to be special, perhaps even messianic. But people with fathers like the carpenter Joseph and mothers like Mary and brothers and sisters like the people they knew there in their own town, he cannot be the disciple. He cannot be the Messiah. He is too much like them to be the transcendent one sent from God. Sometimes you're just too close to see the truth. The second story of rejection is that of Herod. And here we learn that it's better to lose your head than to lose your mind. And that's really what we have, a story of two people. John the Baptist, a prophet sent from God, and Herod, a a wicked ruler who goes insane and does insane things in regards to this prophet sent of God. And what you have here is Matthew tying in this fact that that Herod is hearing about all these things Jesus is doing, and because of a mixture of superstition and some quacked religion, he starts to think that John the Baptist, whom he had killed earlier, had been raised from the dead, and that's really who Jesus was. John the Baptist is back from the dead, and that's how he can perform these miraculous things. And so what happens is you get a flashback to an unjust execution. And so Matthew goes back in time and tells how it is that John the Baptist died because Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And basically the story goes on that that John the Baptist is confronting Herod because Herod had divorced his wife and had married his brother's wife. So he committed adultery in the divorce and then he's committing incest because he's, he's sleeping with his brother's wife, married her. And so there's some problems there. And this evangelist, John the Baptist, decides to wade in on the sanctity of marriage. And he loses his head for it. Because John recognized that Herod and his wife Herodias saw themselves above the laws that governed their subjects. Others should live under God's law, but not us. And so John boldly pointed out that the laws of God are binding on the highest in the land as they are on anyone. Because God has created us all. And we sort of see in this that John's faithful reproofs, if those reproofs come and they are not heeded and listened to willingly, they can also provoke people. And so truth can produce hatred. When you tell the truth, that rejection can come in the form of the people of Nazareth, sort of just dismissing this person as a quack, someone who claims to be something that they're really not. They're getting too big for their britches. We remember where they come from. And on the flip side, those can rejection can turn towards hatred, towards those who speak the truth. As we know, it is rarely popular to speak the moral will of God. I always find it comical when you read these 
public opinion polls. And they'll sort of use these to try to influence religious people, and I guess it works or they wouldn't do it. But people will come out with these opinion, public opinion polls and show, well, look how many people differ from what the church's teaching is on this moral issue or on this issue in our society, this social position. Sort of indicating, well, don't get with the program, right? But we know that truth is not a matter of democracy. We don't all get in a room and vote on what's true. Thank God for that. Truth is revealed from God. And whether we're the only person that agrees with Him or where no one agrees with God, truth is still truth no matter how the vote goes. Jesus told us that the way is broad that leads to destruction. And most people go that way, so I'm not quite surprised when the public opinion polls confirm that, just as John the Baptist faced in his own day. So there's a flashback to an unjust execution. Herod has a, a big birthday party. He brings in his, basically, it's not his daughter, it's the daughter of his wife, who's about 12 or 14 years old. He and Herod and a couple of drinking buddies are, are liquored up, and they bring this young teenage girl in to perform a sensual dance. And, and the, the liquor flowing and the, the dancing going on, he makes a vow that he'll give her whatever she wants. And she goes and talks to her mother, and her mother's mad that John continues to call out their marriage. And so she says, I'd like to have John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod, afraid of losing his word in front of his fellow friends, makes an insane decision. He loses his mind. And because he loses his mind, John the Baptist loses his head. But this isn't just a flashback of an unjust execution. It's also a foreshadowing of an unjust execution. Because it's pointing forward. Herod here is not the same King Herod who had the children executed in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth. That was this Herod's father. But this Herod here that deals with John the Baptist, that out of fear of going back on his word, appearing as a weak man, he brings about the unjust execution of John the Baptist, the prophet of God. Fast forward and we read in Luke chapter 21, verses 6 through 12, an account where Jesus himself is on trial for his own execution. And Pilate, the Roman representative, sends Jesus to Herod, this same Herod, to be examined. And there we recognize that Herod plays another passive role in setting the stage for Jesus' own execution. Not a beheading, but his crucifixion. So we see this rejection. Sometimes you're too close to see the truth. And we recognize that it's better to lose your head than to lose your mind. But how does this type of rejection of Jesus in that day look in our own? Well, look there under the subheading, Rejecting Jesus Now. Well, like the people of Nazareth, we are very crafty at creating mental reasons for rejecting Jesus. We create our own mental reasons. They had their own. Well, you know, we remember Jesus was this little. There's no way that little boy I remember running around Nazareth is, is somehow the Messiah. Are you kidding me? He wasn't trained in a rabbinical school. He doesn't come from a distinguished family. I mean, after all, we're talking about the line of David here. This is going to come from the high ups. It doesn't fit the paradigm that they have in their mind of how the Messiah ought to be. And likewise, we create our own mental reasons for rejecting Jesus. One of those that's common today is that Jesus is outdated. After all, we pride ourselves in the 21st century on being ultra-modern. We're postmodern. 
We cannot conceive how an ancient message in the Bronze Age is relevant to a world of computers and technology and cyber works. And so we don't view Jesus as serviceable for everyday life. Something instead that is new, that is fresh. We need something new to explain our world, such as pluralistic doctrines that explain there are many ways to God. Or an explanation for life and our existence here that erases God from the equation. We not only buy into the idea that Jesus is outdated, but we also can buy into the idea that Jesus is simply overlooked. You see, those with much familiarity with Jesus, whether this comes from your own personal church and family background, particularly the young people in our church who are here maybe against your will, right? You didn't necessarily volunteer to show up here, but your parents bring you. You're exposed to this Christian truth. You've got to be careful that in your mind you're not mistaken to think that your parents' faith is your faith. But even for us as grown-ups, we can become so familiar with Jesus and the gospel and the Bible that we become so close to it that we no longer see its truth. Somewhere in the daily and weekly exposure to Jesus, we lose our perspective of Jesus as our God, as the ruler of our lives. And of course, we would continue to call ourselves Christians because, well, we're not Buddhist or we're not atheists. So, what? I mean, if I'm not any of those, I guess I'm a Christian. But the reality is, Christ doesn't really shape how you live your life. He's not giving you the, the lenses by which you view the world and how you make decisions on everything about your life. From how you spend your money, to how you go about your work, to how you order your family, your marriage, and your parenting. How you express yourself sexually. is not restricted and guided for God's glory and for our good by His truth. You see, Jesus is not an urgent and absolute guide to our everyday activities. Nor is He really a present companion in our thoughts and our minds as we live our lives lives. And thus, we are actively and ongoingly rejecting Jesus by overlooking Him. So we see that we can have these mental reasons, rational arguments that the people of Nazareth give for why they could not see Jesus as the Messiah, the one sent by God to be their deliverer. And we likewise can think of Jesus as outdated and we can simply overlook Him and not really trust Him. But we don't just create mental reasons, we also create moral reasons for rejecting Jesus. And that is that Jesus' message threatens our desire for self-rule. This is the original sin. Everyone gets to say, God, I read an article last week. Someone's like, look how capricious God is. He's heavy-handed that he, he, he judged Eve for eating an apple. And I'm like, really? I mean, you, you, okay, let me explain this to you, how literature works. Someone writing an essay in the New York Times. It wasn't the eating of the apple that was in itself the sin. It was what the eating the apple represented. A casting off of God's right to rule them. God gave them a rule, don't eat of this tree. It wasn't even an apple. But you don't eat of this tree, 
is a command and it represents God has the right to rule over them. And they got tired of living under His rule. They thought, I can do a better job of this. And so their eating of that tree was an expression of casting off God's rule. And that's really what sin is. We get caught up in the particulars, but really at the heart of it is we're looking at God and saying, you don't know best for me. I know best. And I'm going to pick and choose what I want to do. And God's saying, no, I do know best. I created you. I created this world for you to live in. I know what leads to the flourishing of your life. You're only going to bring harm and death and destruction and chaos upon yourself. But the reality is when Jesus comes and he starts talking about his message and his gospel and his rule of his kingdom, that's a threat to our kingdom if we're ruling over it. And so we come up with a reason in our mind why Jesus can't be who he says he is. Oftentimes, intellectual arguments hide behind a moral thing. I often ask people, and if you're here this morning and you're maybe exploring Christ and your Christianity, you're wondering, is this true or not? Here, I want to ask you a question. If it is true, will you believe it? And a lot of times as I've asked people that question, it sort of startles them. Because deep down, there's a, a belief that no, they won't. The issue isn't that it's not true, it's the implications that if it's true and I embrace it, it's going to make claims on my life, and I don't want that. And I appreciate the honesty of that answer, rather than calling forth sort of these false intellectual arguments. And again, some people do have genuine intellectual obstacles to faith, and I understand that, and I respect that, and we want to answer those questions. But there's more than just a mental rejection, there's also a moral thing. I want to be God myself. And so Jesus is also rejected by those who find the message of the kingdom places too much restriction through ethical and moral demands on their lives. Because Jesus and John the Baptist preached a message of righteousness about God performing an inner transformation of the heart that would lead to an external transformation of behavior. A lot of people get this backwards. They think Christianity is about just changing the outside, the external, with rules and regulations. That's not the case. God wants to change us internally. But if He does that, what the Bible calls a new spiritual birth, it will lead to changes in our external behavior. But again, the external behavior change is not what saves us. That comes because God has already transformed us. Because we've trusted in Jesus. Now this message of ethical and moral demands is also offensive to people today. To those who are driven by their own passions, who manipulate the passions of others like Herodias did with Herod, or those who are intent on demanding their rights, this message is viewed as intolerant. And there are many who, like Herodias, would love to have people who preach the truth have their head on a platter. We've seen rejecting Jesus then. We've seen rejecting Jesus now, the mental and the moral reasons we give for rejecting Him. But I want to close with a little more personal application here. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I said, I don't, I'm not yet a Christian. Or maybe you've realized through this that you aren't, that you're sort of just called a Christian because that's by default what you were raised in, or you're not these other things, so therefore that's what you most closely identify with. If you're exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there are really three steps you need to take. 
Number one, you need to admit when you look at God and say, it's, it's not you, it's me. That really is true. We all know that when that booth, we hear in that booth, it's not you, it's not me. The person that's rejecting the other person, they have reasons why this person isn't the one for them. They're just trying to be kind and not share those. It's the annoying personality. It's, you know, their body odor, whatever it is, right? They, they have their reasons. And so when they say, it's not you, it's me, we know that's not true. And a lot of times people will approach the Christian faith with that same reality. Well, I've just got these issues with God. That's why I can't do it. No, 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 no. When you say it's not you, it's me, you're right. The issues are in your own heart, as it is with everyone who's even now a Christian. We have to admit that. God's not at fault. God's not to blame. God is the perfect, just, all-loving, all-compassionate, all-just God who has reigned over our lives perfectly. We can blame nothing at His feet. The blame is at us. And the Bible calls this repentance. It's acknowledging where we fall short, where we have failed to honor God as we should. And because of that failure, we deserve His judgment. But not only should we admit it truly isn't God, it's me, we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We should receive Jesus. We're going to look at this in great detail of what that means next week. And you can actually read ahead there through the end of chapter 14, verse 13 through 36, I believe it is, or 33. And you're going to see examples of faith, of trusting in Christ and relying on Jesus, on believing in Him. Probably the greatest summary of this is in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Notice this verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe rejects, right? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Admit, it truly is God, it's you. Believe on the Lord Jesus and consider this, that rejecting Jesus can halt God's future work in your life. Now, where do I get that? Notice back in chapter 13, they reject Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's not that Jesus couldn't have. It's because they reject what knowledge he has given, he hides any future information. We saw it with the Sanhedrin. By what authority are you doing these things in the temple, Jesus? Well, let me tell you what. You answer this question. Will you acknowledge that my ministry and the ministry of John came from heaven? No, you won't, so therefore I'm not going to give you any more information about my authority. 
and how I work. The greatest way God can judge people is by withholding knowledge about Himself. Because to know God is to know life. And that's why here we see that emphasized, not only in this passage, but if you go back to chapter 13, in the middle of the parables, Jesus explains why He preaches in parables. Parables are a form of hiding the truth from the people. Notice what he says there back in chapter 13. This is why, chapter 13, verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, they're too close to see the truth. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For these people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is saying these people can listen, and people do it. They hear this message. You're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You've heard the message of Christ. He's worthy of your trusting Him because of His death on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead. He has a right of claim upon your life because He created you. You belong to Him. And what you do with that, you've seen the truth, you've heard the truth, but if your heart's dull, you'll see and not see. You'll hear and not hear. And your mind will not understand the truth. And as you reject that, not always, but you do run the risk that Jesus will withhold further knowledge of Himself from you as a form of judgment. If you're going to suppress the truth He's exposed to you, don't be surprised if God refuses to show you any more. That's why it's so important that you don't sit here and think, well, I've got tomorrow, or I've got the next day, or I've got next Sunday. No, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to admit your sin against God. You need to believe on God's substitute, the Lord Jesus, that as He died on the cross, He was punished for your sin, if you'll trust Him. And understand that the only way for you to have life, true life, abundantly in this life and in the life to come is to trust the one who has defeated death Himself, the risen Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not exploring Christ, you've already received Him. You're following Jesus. For those who are following Jesus, we come to this passage and we take away two things. We need to ask God for wisdom in recognizing hard hearts in those who have rejected Jesus. We have to understand that certain people are going to be exposed to the truth and they just become hardened to it, like Herod, like the people of Nazareth. Jesus didn't go back to Nazareth for a second campaign of evangelistic outreach there. He's done. We have to understand that there are going to be people in our life like that. Whether it's family members, neighbors, co-workers, friends, that as they're exposed to the truth, they don't want anything to do with it. They've hardened their heart to it. And we have to be careful that we don't continue to sort of berate those people, right? We recognize their heart has hardened to it. And, and we get this from John, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, when Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
The gospel is the pearl. It's the, the valuable thing. And we have to be discerning in how we distribute that message, especially among those who've made it clear that they have hardened heart. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying we shouldn't share the gospel with someone who's rejected it before. That's not the case. But some of you carry around too great of a burden that you've shared and someone's heard the gospel time and time again and you feel the defeat of that. And you need to be careful that you're not giving to a dog what is holy. You need to be careful that you're not casting pearls before swine, that they're trampling and mocking the truth, and even they're harming you because of your speaking that word to them. That's why I say we have to ask for wisdom in that. There's no flow chart that I can give you to say, should I share the gospel again with my coworker, right? You can have conversations with other Christians. You ask God for wisdom and, and recognizing, is this person who's someone who's rejected Jesus with a hard heart? Or is there just some other reason that they need more exposure to the truth? And then secondly, you need to ask for compassion to avoid developing a hard heart towards those who have rejected Jesus. It's very easy for us to get to the point where we write off people who are not Christians. That's not really what Jesus does here. He, he, he's saddened. He's frustrated. But the reality is, if we're not careful, when people reject Christ, we can sort of turn them into our enemies. But that's not the heart we should have towards them. We want to ask God to always give us an open heart to those who are exploring Christ who are asking questions, who aren't yet believers, to take a humble approach in recognizing as we humbly share the gospel that it is the gospel that is able to break the hardened heart of stone. And we're trusting not our winsomeness, not our communication skills. We're trusting that gospel message that it will fall on receptive hearts. And in those receptive hearts, it will, it will bear a 30, 60, and 100-fold harvest. We just continue to trust God as we sow the seed of His truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. We thank You for this insight and truth of what it looks like to reject Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who have received Him, well, I, I pray that, that you would, as we've prayed already in this service, that there are still pockets of where we like to wrestle back control of our life. Where we have those moments of rejecting Christ's rule, reign in our affairs. And so, Father, I pray that you would expose those, that you would help us to admit we're in the wrong and trust the Lord for forgiveness of that sin and, and ask, invite your work into our hearts to, to overcome that temptation in the future. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would know how to wisely deal with those in the world that have rejected your truth. That we would strike that balance of knowing how to not cast what is holy before dogs, but also not grow hardened in our heart towards those who have rejected Christ. Father, we, that is beyond us. And so we ask for your Spirit's help in walking that tightrope. Father, I pray for those in the room this morning that recognize that they have lived a life up to this point in their life of rejecting you. 
Father, I pray that your truth, by holding up the mirror of these examples of Herod and the people of Nazareth, that all the reasons and the false rationality and the false sensuality that's exposed there, that, Lord, we, we commonly want to employ in our own argumentation with you. Lord, I pray that those arguments would be pushed aside by your truth. And, Father, I pray that you would give them a heart of trusting you, a heart of receiving Jesus as your faithful and final substitute for our sin. And help them to see the joy of being reconciled to you through the work of Jesus on the cross and His triumph over death in His resurrection. They would come to trust in Him because they want to avoid the judgment of you hiding yourself from those who reject what truth you do reveal. Father, we pray for you to work for our good and to glorify yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.